0: If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Our guest today is Diana Waters. If you think you've heard Diana's voice before, when she starts talking, you're probably right. She was a guest on 016. So if you'd like to hear about her favourite quote, how she started with horses, her career with horses and lots of other information, just go back to that episode, listen to that first and then we can go on and listen to this episode. So how are you today, Diana?
1: I'm fine, thanks, Dennis. How are
0: good, you? Good. Diana, you're going to talk about the 10 ways to improve your riding, a biomechanical approach. What started you off with that idea? Why are you you talking about that today? And what do you think it's got for the horse world? Why does the horse world need to know about this?
1: Okay. Well, my ultimate aim is to help horses and riders to be beautiful to watch and also for the experience to be very enjoyable for the horse and rider. And those two ideas are quite linked, I think. And for Mm -hmm. that to happen, I believe that the horse and rider have to be perfectly synchronized with each other which enables the aids to be precisely applied and it also enables the rider to look very elegant and not to block the movement of the horse so that the horse can express themselves and move to their full potential.
0: Mm, mm. I'm thinking as soon as you said it's got to be beautiful to watch, of course the horse has got to be enjoying it because if the horse wasn't enjoying it, it wouldn't be beautiful, you know, for for someone looking at it. Exactly, yes. Yep. All right, so we're going to start off with the first point, and we'll go through these points one by one. How important is it to have a balanced position at the halt? And tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, it's useful to begin with the halt just to make sure that everything's in alignment because if the rider's not perfectly balanced, then they obviously won't be able to control their movement. So, the balance in the halt, we're basically just looking at the basics so the three straight lines shoulder, hip, heel, and the Rider's spine and down the horse's spine, mm-hmm. and from the elbow down the arm to the bit, which most people know. A little bit of extra onto that, which I would look at, would be um, that the pelvis is neutral. So it's important that the pelvis isn't tilted back, which is where the rider would be sitting on their back pocket. And it's important that it's not tilted forward so that the rider is sitting on their fork. It needs to be neutral so that it can move both forward and backwards to absorb the movement of the horse. So that's what I'd be looking for in the halt.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Good.
0: All
1: right. So we're going then from
0: the balanced position at the halt to absorbing the movement in the walk. So how does
1: the position change as we go into walk? Okay. So once the horse starts moving, it becomes about more than just position. It becomes about the, the rider being able to move in time with the horse or synchronize with the horse. So the horse's back moves in two halves and therefore it's important that the rider's seat bones also move in two halves. So as the horse's hind leg steps under, the seat bone on that side moves forward and then back again as it the opposite side moves forward. So the seat bones need to move alternately and the other thing that needs to happen is that the horse's belly will swing slightly left and right Mm -hmm. So as the hind leg moves forward on the right, the belly will move to the left and the rider's legs need to gently be able to follow that movement. And your aids also need to be in time with that movement as well. So for example, if you're asking for a leg yield, you need to apply that leg aid as the belly swings away, which corresponds to the moment when that hind leg reaches forward. So in order to be able to apply those aids accurately, your seat bones need to be moving separately and the legs need to be following the swing of the belly. Those are the main two things mm. for absorbing the movement in the walk. So when you're
0: saying about the leg aids, it's not just then if you want your horse to leg yield to put the leg on, it's
1: an on-off, on-off. That's right. And the off is more important than the on because mm-hmm. it's the release which causes the lightness and the quick response from the horse and which makes it clear to the horse what's expected. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the timing of the application of the aid and the timing of the release are both extremely important.
0: Mm -hmm. So when you're saying the timing, and you'd already talked about the timing of the seat and the aids in aligning with, you know, the horse's back and the belly, and then that becomes the sequence of legs. So it's still the timing within the sequence of legs as well, isn't it? That's right, yes. Yeah. All right, so what sort of faults? We're going on to point number three now about correcting faults in the walk. What sort of faults are common faults that you see at the walk?
1: The most common faults I see are too much activity. So you will see a pushing seat Mm -hmm. and you'll see nagging legs. Now, the pushing seat is not as easy to correct as you might think. And I've put a lot of thought into doing this and actually most of My ideas have come from Heather Moffat and with help from other enlightened equitation teachers. But there's also some of my own observations added on. But um, in the walk, it's quite common for the rider to expect the walk to be too fast and to be constantly pushing to make the walk faster, which can cause the pushing seat and the nagging legs. But the pushing seat can also be caused if the seat bones aren't moving separately. So in other words, the rider's pushing both seat bones forward and back with every step instead of allowing one seat bone to go and then the other it can be quite hard for the rider to separate the seat bones particularly if their upper body is too far back or if their pelvis is not neutral so it's quite common for people to sit on their back pockets or to be leaning just slightly too far back with the upper body and what that means is that the pelvis the lower back can't flex in and out correctly and the seat bones can't separate. Mm -hmm. So just those little adjustments of moving the upper body forward slightly, making sure the pelvis is neutral can be enough to enable the rider to move the two seat bones separately, which then reduces that movement in the hips and it reduces the movement in the legs because the legs are then able to move separately as well and the aids are able to be applied Mm. with better timing. So uh, this is where we use the EquiSimulator as well because you can, um, when you have a rider that has the problem of the pushing seat you can get them on the simulator and you can figure out what's causing that problem and quite often if I I can just very gently guide the the riders back slightly forward and suddenly the problem disappears and they can see that in the mirror as well and then they can get on their own horse and apply that to the horse and it mm-hmm. can be just a very small little adjustment that you're making the other thing that can happen in the walk if the rider is behind the movement, is that the head can nod and that, again, is a symptom of not absorbing the movement correctly in the lower back, so that movement has to be absorbed somewhere and often it ends up being absorbed in the head and neck instead.
0: Yep, yep. And I'm just thinking, because some of these corrections you're giving are very subtle corrections, you know, like to improve riding, there's nothing that beats those hours in the saddle, but surely it's got to be that at an early stage you've got to Go to a coach that really can understand these subtle differences so that you're practising the correct things instead of practising the wrong things.
1: That's right. And that's why um, it's so important to teach beginners correctly mm. because it's a lot easier to um, teach something correctly from the start than to try and correct it once it's become quite an established habit. And I'm really interested in this. I spend a lot of time watching other people ride, obviously my own students, but also watching videos. and trying to figure out what causes a specific problem Mm -hmm. and I think very often it can be a very tiny change in body angle
2: Mm -hmm. and it's
1: quite hard to see that when you're teaching a student on the ground on their horse you're also trying to keep the horse going but we've come up with this list with the help of the X simulator also Mm -hmm. I'll often submit a video in to some of my Enlightened Equitation colleagues in the UK yep. and often one of them will have had the same thing and figured it out. So we're really trying to build here a you know a basis of solutions to solve all the little problems that you get mm. which can mm. actually escalate to bigger problems.
0: If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now, have a look, horsechats.com. And that'll take us through now to absorbing movements in the sitting trot. So Diana, what have you got to say about absorbing the movement in the sitting trot? How can we help the riders to improve their riding using this biomechanical approach?
1: Okay, so the first important thing about the sitting trot is the horse, because we don't want to be trying to ride sitting trot on a horse that's not swinging correctly through the back. The horse needs to be strong enough and moving correctly. If the horse isn't moving correctly, then number one, the rider will get bounced around and they won't be able to absorb the movement. Also, it's going to be damaging for the horse to have the rider sitting on their back when they're not yet balanced. So once we've got the trot correct, we'll generally start off with just the short periods of trot, um, especially with a novice rider. So we'll do walk, trot, walk transitions, which just enables them to maintain their balance and synchronization for short periods of time to begin with, and then you can gradually build on that. So the movement is in the trot. The lower back flexes, same as in the walk, but the flexion is a little bit greater. So the pelvis needs to be neutral. The seat bones move separately, the same as in the walk. So a little bit faster and a bigger movement than the walk. In order to enable the seat bones to move separately with the two halves of the horse's back, the rider needs to be sitting up fairly tall and not collapsing in their core. So a strong core, a relaxed lower back, and the two halves of the pelvis move separately in the sitting trot.
0: All right, good. And the thing that, you know, you said about riding correctly is dependent on the way the horse is going. It's very hard for a rider to sit to a trot where the horse is running on head up hollow backed. So to have the correct school horse or to have what can we do there to help improve the riders so they can learn to do sitting trot without having to worry about the way the horse is going? Or should they just focus on rising trot first until they can get the trot established? What do you think about that either way?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. Mm. We come across this a lot, teaching people on their own horses. It depends on the situation. Every situation is different. So obviously the ideal situation is that you would be on a schoolmaster who is well balanced when you learn a sitting trot unfortunately that's not always possible i have the x simulator so i will commonly use that to teach the sitting trot and that's an extremely useful tool um some people you can teach them sitting trot on their own horse even if it's not highly trained and again that would be using the the short periods of trot especially if it's quite a small moving horse It does the horse no harm to do a few steps a jog type trot to begin with the rider learns to sit that smaller movement and then gradually they can learn to sit a larger movement. But if you have a horse that's very big moving and you don't have access to a schoolmaster, then I would generally be sticking to rising trot Mm -hmm. and working as much as we can in that. Because it's always got to be about the horse and the comfort of the horse. There's never a situation where it's good to have the rider bouncing around on the horse's back. That doesn't help anybody. Yeah.
0: So I think you've pretty much covered That next bit about correcting the faults in the sitting trot, is that right? We can move on to rising
1: trot? Well, I think there's a little bit more we can add to correcting the faults in the sitting trot. Yeah, please. So one of the common faults is that there's not enough movement in the rider's lower back. And this is generally caused the same as for the walk by the pelvis being tilted back onto the back pockets or the seat bones being fixed together. This causes the nodding head, which you'll see even in top-level riders sometimes. Mm -hmm. You'll see the head nodding, the upper body behind the movement, and sometimes the arms are bouncing as well. That's all caused by the seat bones being fixed together and not moving separately. Mm -hmm. It's harder to correct in the trot um, because everything happens a lot quicker and the movement's a lot bigger. Often... One of the big causes is to do with the upper body here. And another fault which is related to this is what we call the pelvic wiggle. Mm -hmm. So there's too much movement in the rider's midriff. So it looks as if the hips are pushing and shoving and the middle of the rider is um, wobbling about quite a lot. So the solution for all of these faults is the same, which is that the rider needs to learn to carry their upper body and to engage their core. Mm-hmm. and there's actually a really good trick which anybody can try for this which I learned from Heather Moffitt, and that's to wear a back support back to front so um, you know those back supports yeah, yeah, yeah. you have a fairly rigid bit which goes around the I'm trying back. to
0: picture it I'm trying to imagine it yeah yeah okay yeah
1: if you turn that around so that the hard bit is in the front every time you collapse it digs into you. So it gives you that um, instant feedback every time you're collapsing your core. And that actually can fix all of these problems because once you're carrying yourself correctly, you're then not weighing down on your pelvis. So you can move the seat bones separately and you can move the lower back correctly. So that's a really good quick fix that anybody can try. Mm. I'm not a big one for big quick fixes in horses, but a quick fix in a rider, I think, can sometimes be very useful. I'll use that um, the back support on a real horse or on the simulator as well.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that brings us to you know having a position and being able to ride. It is important. You don't just sit there like a sack of potatoes, but it is important to have a strong core to be able to ride well.
1: It is, but it's very helpful to do things like Pilates and other exercises to help with that. But um, putting it into practice can be a lot harder. Mm, mm. And that's why I think it's important to be able to break things down and to tell people exactly what they need to do because yep. you can, say, engage your core or sit up, but people don't necessarily aren't necessarily able to feel whether they are or aren't doing that.
2: Sure, Yeah. sure.
1: All right, we're going
0: to move on to point number six now, which is absorbing movement in the rising trot.
1: Okay, so in the rising trot, the upper body needs to be inclined slightly forward, the hips swing forward and back in a small arc, And the big one for me is that the head and the shoulders need to remain over the withers. They don't move relative to the horse. So if you see somebody really balanced in the rising trot, they'll appear to glide. If you look at their head and shoulders, they appear to glide along. They don't bounce up and down. They don't move forwards and backwards, but they glide along with the horse. And that's a real indication that the rider's balanced. In order for that to happen, the rider needs to be leaning slightly forward in the rise phase and a little bit more forward in the sit phase. And in the sit phase, the rider's pelvis also needs to be tilted slightly forward as opposed to neutral. And you're sitting softly with your pelvis tilted slightly forward, which enables you to keep your head and shoulders in that position over the front of the saddle, Mm -hmm. which makes you very light and easy for the horse to carry and very balanced and controlled in your rising.
0: All right, so that's about absorbing movement in the rising trot, but what sort of common faults would you see if we take us on to number seven about correcting faults in the rising trot?
1: Okay, one of the most common faults is that the rider sits quite heavily into the back of the saddle, which compresses the horse's back with every sit phase. You can see this happening if you go and watch riders ride. If you see the saddle bouncing up with the rise and squashing down with the sit, You often see that to varying extents. That's caused by the rider falling behind the movement. And the rider falling behind the movement can be caused by the upper body being too upright because a lot of people will say to sit up in the rising trot. It's caused by the legs being too far forward or gripping with the knees. It can be caused by rising too high or it can be caused by trying to sit with the pelvis tilted too far back. So then that results in much too big a movement between the rise and the sit, and the rider ends up sitting in the back of the saddle. Another problem that we see is the rider is just slightly out of time with the trot, which results in a kind of double bounce. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. Have you seen that? Yes, and and actually everything you're saying, I'm picturing, you know? So I hope that people listening are are thinking about this, you know, thinking about it, picturing it, drawing it if they need to, you know, standing up, sitting, feeling it. So it's not just, oh, I'll listen to this podcast and I'll come back to it, but, you know, go through and take advantage of it and either draw or sit or Except if you're driving, you'd better not, um, <laughs> You'd better not do it. But you know, yeah. just as you're listening to it, start to think about each phase and start to think about yeah. what Diana's is telling you. You know, even if you're sitting down, if you can feel what's happening, and then and then use taking that and using it to become a better rider and to improve coaching. Yeah,
1: yeah. Hope to be able to make it fairly clear and not mm. too complicated. Mm. It's easier when you're with the person; you can show them as well. Sure. But at least sure. hopefully, it will get people. Thinking about what what I'm feeling and seeing, is that right or could it be improved? So with the double bounce that you see, this um, frustrated me for quite a long time because I couldn't figure out why some people were doing it. Yep. They just couldn't seem to get the timing right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I discovered it's not necessarily about their timing, it's about their control. Mm-hmm. And the control again is related to the balance. So yep. Yep. and the absorption of the movement. So one cause of the double bounce is that the rider is just not balanced, which is usually caused by the legs being too far forward or the body being too far back. Mm-hmm. Which means that when you sit, you can't control the speed of your sit. Yeah. So you Fall down at whatever whatever speed you happen to fall down, mm-hmm. and then you're slightly out of time with the horse. Another problem which I recently discovered as well, which is very interesting, is that especially with a bigger trot, if the rider's knees and ankles are fixed, they can't actually absorb the stride in the up phase of the trot. So your knees and ankles need to flex a little bit when you're standing, especially in a bigger trot. Um, if you trot in a two point position, or if you trot in a standing position then your knees and ankles flex, don't they, to absorb that stride? And the same thing needs to be able to happen when you're in the rising trot. So your knees and ankles must be soft. Otherwise, you get to the rise and then you immediately start to fall down again because you can't absorb that little bump in the rise phase. Mm -hmm. And so that's another cause of the double bounce. Another cause is just the rider trying too hard. So sometimes they might just be rising too high out of the saddle and they're not allowing the horse to push them out of the saddle. So sometimes that's just about trying to feel what's going on underneath you. Just stand up as high as the horse pushes you, which might not be very high, and then control the downward uh, movement. You don't have to stand all the way up every Mm. time. Mm. So correcting those faults, there's a few ways to correct them. It's helpful in HALT to just double-check again on the rider's leg position and their body and pelvis angle. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've even... um, if you hold the rider's legs in the correct position, if their legs are tending to shoot forward, then hold their legs back and get them to rise. They can actually feel how much more balance they can rise with the legs further back. This is on the simulator, obviously. Yes. Yes. Uh, once they've got a feel for it, they can then replicate that. So that's, that's a helpful thing that you can do. Yes. But even on a horse, you can do that in the halt mm. Mm. to make sure everything's in the right place and everything's balanced while they're stationary. Oh, wait, before you go... If you're an equestrian coach or a horse
0: riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Especially, you know, thinking about beginner riders, they get on there, they sit down like it's a lounge chair, they struggle with the trot they lean far too far their legs are too far forward so they've got to lean far too far forward to compensate then they try and get themselves out of the saddle and if you've allowed them to have the reins they're pulling on the horse's mouth but if you haven't allowed them the elbows come out or they grab the mane because they're not balanced whereas you know what you're saying is just make sure that they're balanced in the trot before they even start to rise yeah
1: yeah And this is all the coach's responsibility Mm. and we owe that to the horse and the rider because we do often, I mean, some people will just expect the the rider to get on and know how to sit and know how to move. And sometimes even when they're making corrections, the rider doesn't really understand what they mean. So it's really, really important at the basic level just to stay balanced in the rising trot.
0: Okay, we can go on to point number eight now, which is absorbing movement in the canter. Can you tell us a bit about how the body changes and what needs to happen for the rider to absorb the movement in the canter.
1: So the canter is a little bit different. um, And if you watch a really good rider cantering, you can see that the hips move in a backward circle, forward, up, back and down. The up part of the circle synchronizes with the suspension phase of the canter. The most active part of that circle is the up part, which is created by a lift from tensing the buttocks and then you need to immediately release that tension and allow your lower back to flex so that the pelvis goes to the back and down part of the circle. There's also a slight lateral movement towards the leading leg during the up phase and that's created naturally by having the outside hip slightly further back than the inside which enables the seat to go up towards the leading leg. So that's canter movement. While you're talking, I'm going, oh, yeah, right. (laughs) And I even had my hip
0: in the right place when you're talking about leading leg, so good, good. No, I think that's good. (laughs) I think think your explanations are really good because they're quite detailed and subtle, but it's enough to separate that, you know, you can sort of think about each different movement as we're going through it. Now talk about common faults in the canter and um, how to correct
1: them. Okay. Well, if you can imagine, um, one of the most common faults is the seat popping out of the back of the saddle. So the rider doesn't quite stay in the saddle and it's um, they're generally leaning a little bit too far forward and they're not allowing the lower back to flex enough for the down and back part of the circle. And a more serious fault is the polishing of the saddle, which is where the seat scrubs forward and back, but there's no lift And that means that the horse can't really lift their back and can't go very well into the suspension phase of the canter. So it tends to make the canter quite flat. The polishing the saddle is caused by leaning back or by some people even purposely exaggerating the forward and back movement. And some people are not creating that lift. So the circle's not going up. And that's because they're not tensing their buttocks and engaging the core. Both of those faults that I've talked about, the popping out of the seat at the back and the polishing the saddle, are very hard to correct on a horse. And that's because most horses can't maintain a balanced canter for long enough to help the rider, particularly at the level where I'm mostly teaching. Mm -hmm. So there are solutions. though. you can practice your hip circles on a gym ball and the gym ball will bounce correctly if you get your timings right. There's quite an important timing element to absorbing the movement in the canter because you tension your buttocks momentarily to cause the lift and then you need to release that tension immediately and allow your weight to fall down again for the back and down phase circle. Most people, when they try this for the first time, myself included, can't release the tension quickly enough. Or you can release the tension once and then you do it again and then you can't release it. Because it's not really a a movement that you're particularly used to doing and you need to train your body to do that. So if you sit in front of a TV on a gym ball and practice to begin with just tensing and releasing in time with the bounce of the gym ball and you create that lift with your tension and then you release, eventually you can train your muscles to do that. And once you've um, got that aspect, the rest of the circle is fairly easy. In fact, the horse pretty much causes that to happen themselves. And that will make a really big difference to how still you're able to keep your legs, how well you're able to stay with the horse in the canter, and um, how free the horse's canter is able to be. So it can even help towards improving the horse's canter as well as your own riding and you'll look a lot stiller on the horse. I was going
0: to say the exercises, you know, that you're saying with the gym balls, it's sort of something that you can do. So, you know, it's dark and your horse has been worked for the day and you want to get more riding in, but you've only got one horse to ride or two horses to ride, and you want to do more in your spare time. And that picking up a gym ball, it's just, you know, it's another one of those exercises that you can do to improve your riding, but while you're not riding.
1: Yes, and that's actually extremely important mm. to find opportunities for doing that. And even if it's just visualization, because mm. the amount of time you spend on a horse, often it's not really quality time spent focusing on your position because you're trying to get the horse to do things. Sure. So the amount of time we get to spend on a horse practicing our position is very, very limited. And that's, um, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I got the simulator for myself as well, because I spend a long time practicing and correcting my own riding on the simulator and just getting it really into my muscle memory. But if you don't have a simulator, there's there's other ways that you can do that. Even if Mm. you're driving along in the car, you can practice the tensing of the buttocks and the release
0: I was going to say, if you're driving though, let's practice it when you're um, just still first before you start, don't go down the highway and start practicing that.
1: Well, that's true. I don't want to be responsible for causing an accident.
0: <laughs> when you're sitting in the car at, without the engine on. <laughs> With your posture
1: as well. When mm-hmm. I first get in the car, and this, yeah. I mean, this is generally good, but when I first get in the car, I just make sure my shoulder blades are flat Yep. and that's when I work on my posture. And I also work on my um, softness of my elbows and wrists because that's good for driving as well. It's good Mm. to to not grip the steering wheel really, really hard, Mm -hmm. but to have a a firm but gentle grip on the steering wheel. So that's another opportunity where you can practice those things. Yeah, Yeah, obviously never compromising your safety with driving.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now we've got point number 10, which is putting it all into practice. But before we do point number 10, can I just quickly go through the previous nine points, and you interrupt if you think that there's anything extra that you need to cover, and then we'll finish off with point number 10. So the first one is the balanced position at the halt, getting that established first. The next one is absorbing movement in the walk, then correcting the faults within the walk. Then we talked about the sitting trot, so absorbing the movements in the sitting trot, and then correcting any faults in the sitting trot. Then we went on to the rising trot and absorbing the movement there, correcting the faults in the rising trot, absorbing the movement in the canter and correcting the faults in the canter. So we've sort of gone through the paces, the different ways to ride the paces like sitting trot, rising trot. But if we can go to point number 10 now, which is putting it all into practice and setting ourselves up for success. If you can talk to us about that, that would be brilliant. Brilliant. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Yeah,
1: okay. So um, putting it into practice. Obviously, it's really important to have all the theory work there and to do everything you can to you know, have a coach correct you and to find out um, what's causing those faults also to understand, technically speaking, how the horse moves and how that moves your body, that's already important. But we start to come into difficulties based on what's limiting us. So a lot of people, especially uh, novice riders or even recreational riders who may not be novice, they may be quite good riders, but they have a horse which they bought based on its temperament and its quietness, but it's not necessarily a very highly trained horse. It's not necessarily moving in a very balanced way, that doesn't mean that they need to sell the horse and buy themselves a schoolmaster. Um, There's ways that you can deal with that situation without having to do that. And um, one of the important things for me with your horse is to slow things down and to get things right at a slower pace first. So you can do a lot to, even if your trot and canter aren't very good, you could do a lot to improve your horse's balance by doing lateral work in the walk, which can be taught to anybody. It's all just about timing and balance. So lateral work in the walk, rein back and halt transitions will immediately improve your horse's balance in the walk. Once you've got a balanced walk, you can then work on your walk-trot transitions. And if you begin with walk-trot-walk, You'll generally go from a balanced walk naturally into a fairly balanced trot. And as long as you keep the time period of the trot very slow, then you can maintain that. So you can gradually learn to synchronize with the movement and maintain the balance in that way. Mm -hmm. And you know, from that, you gradually build duration you will also find that if you introduce canter a lot later, once you've established your lateral work in trot, that the first transition to canter will be much, much more balanced. Mm -hmm. And you won't have all these problems with running into canter, taking off on the wrong lead. And then often people will be in canter on the forehand and they'll be trying to correct it by maintaining the canter. If you can set up, a good canter by having the horse very balanced in and established in walk and trot then you don't have to go through all of that and it's much better for the horse and it's much better for the rider so you've got to be creative about working with what you've got and setting yourself up for success and i would always urge people if you find yourself bouncing or out of sync with a horse come back to walk and start again because nothing is gained mm. and i know um the the way that I trained with the BHS we had to go round in a fairly fast trot with no stirrups for hours and hours well it felt like hours it probably (laughs) wasn't but um yeah we got a good seat eventually but that was probably to the detriment of the horse Mm -hmm. because the horse had to deal with a whole lot of bouncing in order for us to get there but I now believe that's not necessary and it's not really ethical for the sake of the horse Mm -hmm. or the rider Mm -hmm. it may get the results And it may work for some people, but I think you can be creative about it. You should put the horse's comfort first at all times. And you'll get a much more rewarding journey by doing it that way. Um, It doesn't have to be no pain, no gain. It can be, you know, use your brain, use your creativity and use your feel to think, does this feel good? If it doesn't, how else could I try to do it? So there's lots of ways of dealing with the problems that, that we face. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be, oh, you know, well, that horse isn't suitable. You need a more educated horse. We can work with it. And especially if, if you get the guidance of a good coach, you can work with what you've got.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: The other thing, though, that I think is really important is the saddle balance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's quite hard because I'm, I'm not for the person that wants to try to push people into spending a lot of money buying, you know, or you've got to buy a new saddle. But I do feel that if you do have, you know, the spare money to spend is really worth investing in a good saddle because if your saddle is balancing you and putting you in the right position, then you're not fighting it. And it's really setting you up for success. It's also really helping the horse because. If the saddle can help to put you in a balanced position, then you're not hurting the horse and you're not bouncing on the horse. It just cuts out a lot of the early on problems that we have. So I actually, from riding a lot on riding school horses in GP saddles, I've learned to sort of pull the stirrup bar back. And that's what I still do when Mm. I get on. So I tend to often even ride my legs too far back now because I'm riding in better saddles. But generally speaking, the stirrup bars, even on dressage saddles, are often too far forward. And so the rider is fighting them all the time, which is what I did, to get your leg in the right position. And if you're fighting the saddle, then that's energy that you could be putting in much more productive areas. So when you're sitting on the saddle, if you look at the saddle on the horse, the deepest part of the saddle should be horizontal, not tipped back or forward. And if you're sitting on the horse with your correct shoulder, hip, heel line, the stirrup levers should be vertical. They shouldn't be pulled forwards. So if you can get those two things right with your saddle, then that will help you a huge amount and enable you to move on with your riding. And I just think that alongside being a really good fit for the horse are really good ways to set yourself up and to set yourself on the right track
0: yeah about the saddle you know it doesn't mean you've got to go out and buy a new saddle latest everything else look around and you know if you are on a budget have a look around and see if you can pick up a good second hand saddle rather than uh, you can often pick up a better second hand saddle for the budget that you've got than going out and buying a brand new saddle
1: yes and it's also important though because I've had um, clients who I've pointed this out to and they've gone and bought a new saddle but it's actually no better than the old one. Mm. It's important to make sure to do those checks that I've told you about and and just make sure that you've got that levelness and the correct placement of the stirrup bar. Um, I'm not trying to plug here, but I personally recommend the Heather Moffat saddles, and she does a synthetic version, which is affordable. Mm-hmm. And... That's what I would recommend personally. But, you know, you, like you say, you can look around. It doesn't have to be a leather saddle, it doesn't have to be fancy. But, yeah, the positioning of the stirrup bars is very important.
0: Yeah. All right, Diana, thanks very much for all of your insights there onto the 10 ways to improve your riding, a biomechanical approach. And if you're anything like me, and even though I've said to you, go and Listen to 016, but you kept going with this podcast. Remember to go back, listen to 016 at some time so you can find a little bit more about Diana, what she does, and, you know, everything, why she's got the expertise to go ahead and talk about ways to improving your riding. And I think we've gone through those 10 points. Those 10 points will be summarised as well on horsechats.com slash Diana Waters. And also, too, if you go in and – actually, it'll be Diana Waters 2. If you go into horsechats.com and just search for Diana, you'll find it, and it's Diana with one N. And, Diana, your contact details, if you'd like to say them again, and they'll also be on horsechats.com slash Diana Waters 2.
1: Yes, well, all my um, contact details are on my website, which mm-hmm. is responsiveequine.com.au. yep. I also wanted to add a final word if that's okay. Sure. just about the I just wanted to say that there's often a temptation to increase the strength of your aids, so to add whip or to add spur mm. if something's not working. And I actually don't think there's any ever a need for this. I feel really strongly that if you fix your position and your synchronisation with the movement and if you fix your timing of the aids, the application and the release of the aids, then you never need to increase those aids and I believe that everyone at all levels can ride beautifully if they're shown how to do this. And I think that's what everybody should be aiming for. It's not just for the elite riders. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> all
0: right. Thanks, Diana. And hopefully you'll come back with some more of your educational knowledge, um, come back another time, and we look forward to seeing that. And thanks very much for talking to us today. Thanks
1: very much for having me.
0: If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe.